We're going to be in the fifth chapter of Romans first. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll get it to that passage in just a moment. I don't know about you, but every time there's a wildfire out west, it just fascinates me for whatever reason. I've always been fascinated by them. They've had wildfires. Certainly this past year they had them, but it was really, really crazy in 2020. There were tremendous wildfires out west. In California, four and a half million acres were burned. And a lot of people tried to blame the intensity of these wildfires on a lot of things, but from everything that I've read, it appears that an increase in underbrush and foliage led to the rapid spread of these wildfires. In a forest, you need underbrush and you need foliage, but you don't need too much. And apparently that is what happened causing these fires to spread the way that they did. Dead trees fall, there's this tremendous amount of underbrush, and these things, when they're sparked, take off like a rocket, almost literally. They spread so easily and so quickly that even the experts were caught off by the speed and magnitude of the spread. Now, these fires can get so intense so quickly that they actually create something called fire tornadoes. I don't know if you've ever heard of those before, but they actually exist, and I think we have a photo, and you can see that, that in an intensely hot firestorm or in a wildfire that fire tornadoes can actually exist, and it's incredible, and without getting into the huge details of it all, they happen when intense heat from a wildfire permeates the air around the fire. Now, what happens when air gets super hot? It's going to rise. Something has to replace that. So when it gets so hot and the, and the hot air rushes up, this cool air goes straight down and replaces it. And it, under the right conditions, it creates a whirlwind around the fire. Thanks, guys. I appreciate that. And I want you to think about this for a moment as we begin our chat today. The heat from these fires is so intense that it actually changes the atmosphere around it. It actually changes the atmosphere around it. And so you have this fire happening and all of a sudden everything around it changes. And of course these tornadoes obviously just serve to spread the fire more quickly and destructively as the embers are spread by it. Now this was initially believed to be a relatively new thing but actually, this was studied and employed all the way back in World War II. There's a book called Fire and the Air War. And in that book, it talks about the Allied bombing of Dresden, German city, in 1945, close to the time the, the war ended. And what the Allies had figured out was that it was better for them if not necessarily you knock down everything in a city, but you knock down enough of it, and then you set it on fire. And that's what they just did in Dresden in 1945. They had a saturation bombing campaign by identifying the districts of the city that had the most wood structures in it. And so they bombed those areas like crazy. They knocked those wood structures down, and then they followed that bombing campaign with another bombing campaign, but these bombs were specifically created to cause fire when they exploded. They were 
filled with magnesium and another element that caused fire when they exploded. And it had the desired effect that they were hoping that it would. The fire from these bombing campaigns burned so intensely in the city of Dresden that it had the desired effect of lighting the city on fire. And the fire was so hot for such a large amount of space that when that warm air rose up, and it did about 30 minutes after the end of the campaign, when that warm air shot up into the air, this cool air rushed down to replace it, and it created almost what observers described as a city-wide thunderstorm, only it was fire. It created hurricane-forced winds, this bombing campaign did. It uprooted trees. It demolished anything that was left standing, pretty much especially if it was made of wood, and it had the desired effect that the Allies were hoping, and then it caused complete and total destruction. Amazing, the power of fire. Now, the Bible uses fire to illustrate a lot of things, and certainly the effects of sin is one of those. And I think these examples of the fire tornado and the Dresden bombing are a perfect example of how sin works, which is one of the things I want to talk to you about this morning. And we need to know how it works. It's very important to know how it works both in the life of a believer and a non-believer. So I want to go to Scripture to talk about sin in the world, in the lives of believers and non-believers, and how to have victory over it. Now, Fire is used as an analogy for many things in Scripture because of its power. The Holy Spirit is described as fire or flame. There's what is referred to as refiner's fire. The Bible tells us that God is a jealous God and that his anger burns. The Lord descends on Mount Sinai in a fire and speaks to Moses through a burning bush. But it is also used to describe sin and sin's effects. And James He tells us that the tongue is a fire and is itself set on fire by hell. And, of course, hell is described as an eternal fire. So, as we go to Scripture, in the fifth chapter of Romans, first point here in your outline is sin is destructive and deadly. Sin is destructive and deadly. And as we get ready to read Romans 5.12 here, you should know, and I hope you do, that at Ridgecrest we believe that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. It is true in all things. It is completely reliable and trustworthy, and we can rely on it always. Not everybody in Christendom believes this. Some people in Christendom believe that the Bible contains the Word of God, but not all of it is. Let me tell you why that's important. It's all about posture. If you believe that the Bible contains the Word of God but not is, is not entirely the Word of God, that puts you in a position of authority over this because you can decide what is God's Word and what isn't God's Word in here. So it puts you in whose place? God's. Your posture is everything. If you believe that the Bible is completely the Word of God, this puts the Bible in the position of authority as God's Word, and we slide our lives underneath it, not the other way around. That's a very important distinction, and I just wanted you to know that 
that we believe here at Ridgecrest that it is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Coming up in a couple of weeks, we're going to start some RAD classes. And I'm going to teach one that I'm looking very forward to. It's called Scripture and Authority in an Age of Skepticism. Scripture and Authority in an Age of Skepticism. And it is extremely important. Yes, we believe God's Word on faith, and that is wonderful. But there is a world out there that is growing increasingly skeptical. You tell them what the Bible says, they don't care. It's important for us to know, is the Bible reliable? So we're going to be teaching that as part of RAD in a couple of weeks, but there's so many other good things that are being taught in RAD in a couple of weeks. And I hope if you haven't signed up yet that you will sign up for something because there's so many good things. Pastor's going to be teaching a class in how to study your Bible, which is very important. A series of ladies are going to cover some ladies' topics, and those are always good. Same thing with men. There is going to be a, a men-specific study as well. A very good Bible teacher, Chester Davis, is going to teach a class on how to share your faith. So there's something for everyone there. Uh, our prayer team is going to teach something on life-changing prayer. So uh, Brother Aaron and Bradley, they're going to teach one on life-changing worship which is probably the one I would, I would choose to go to if, if I wasn't teaching. So I hope you will take that seriously. After service, you can sign up in the uh, Welcome Center, and that's coming up on February the 13th. And you can grab a baby bottle while you're there as well. We still have some of them left for Wiregrass Hope. Sin is destructive and deadly. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So this is the first thing we need to know. The intense fire that we talked about earlier has the potential to kill, but sin kills everything not under the blood of Christ. Sin kills everything not under the blood of Christ. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no remedy for sin. And the Bible is clear about that, and we have a tendency to treat sin in a cavalier manner because we don't necessarily see its effects immediately. We love to eat unhealthy stuff, and at the time it tastes really good, and we don't eat like crazy one day and develop severe obesity or diabetes or clogged arteries the next, but eventually it catches up with you. And so does sin, whether the sin is obviously overt or subtle and covert. In Numbers 32, the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. When you think about how destructive and deadly those California wildfires were, they don't discriminate. They may start in the middle of a forest, but they'll burn a mansion, they'll burn mobile homes, they'll burn anything in their path. They don't discriminate and neither does sin. Sin works that way as well. You don't get a pass for being in a certain class, social structure. You don't get a class for being in a certain gender. You don't get a pass for being any type of person. Sin doesn't discriminate. The Bible also says that the wages of sin is death. Death is the payoff of sin. And again, it doesn't discriminate. And Romans also states that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's destructive. It's deadly. The payoff of sin is death. It doesn't discriminate. None of us 
are off the hook with this matter. That's the first principle of sin we need to know. Here's the second. This can be found in the first chapter of James. Sin escalates and can spread rapidly. Sin escalates and can spread rapidly. First chapter of James, verses 14 and 15, say this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. California wildfires began with a single spark. That led to a tiny flame. That led to a tiny fire. That led to a big fire. And that led to a killer wildfire. And I want you to look at how sin progresses in a person according to James. And if I may take the liberty, I would like to go one step before James. And I believe this is scripturally accurate. And let's talk about the progression of sin in a person because this is very important for us to know how it works so that we can do something about it. And let me first say underneath that in your subpoints, let me first say that sin begins with a thought. Sin begins with a thought. Sometimes it may be a second or two before that thought turns into something else. Sometimes it may be hours or days or weeks or even years, but sin begins with a thought. A thought enters your mind much like the thought of Eve had in the garden when Satan told her that she could be like God. Sin begins with a thought. Then things begin to progress. Eventually, if you allow it to, that thought is going to progress into something else. That thought is going to become an emotion. If you allow the thought to linger in your mind, you are going to attach an emotion to it. In 2 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 15, Paul tells us to take every thought captive. Why would he put it that way? Let me ask you this. What is more easily controlled, a thought or an emotion? Thoughts can be controlled much more easily than emotions can. Emotions are pretty powerful. If you can learn to take your thoughts captive, a lot of destruction gets short-circuited. If you can put a fire out while it's still on the head of a match, it's a lot easier to do that than when it gets spread to dry weeds. Emotions are stronger than thoughts. And once you start to dwell on that thought, you're headed down the wrong path. So we dwell on a thought, an emotion gets attached. And the longer we stay on that, it continues to grow to what James calls a desire. Thought. Emotion. Desire. You can see a progression of sin here. A thought, the easiest place to short-circuit things. An emotion is much stronger than a thought. And then if you allow that emotion to linger, that is going to turn into a desire. And desires are even more powerful than emotions are. It is extremely difficult to stop things at the desire stage. And it says... That desire gives birth to sin, and then sin gives birth and grows up into death. That is the progression of sin. Um, my wife, Melanie, is the queen of buy one, get one. Uh, she, uh, 
She doesn't need an app. She is the app. And she just senses, I think, when things go on sale, buy one, get one. And so when ice cream goes on sale, we get it, all of it, <laughs> at the same time. So we have enough for all of y'all, actually, if, if y'all would like to come one night. We have that much. And so I know in my mind that, I, that there is ice cream at all times in my house. I like it. You know, you're not supposed to have too much of that, especially at night when it's like 930 and you're getting ready to go to bed, but boy, ice cream would be really good. And that's when the thought enters my mind. And if I can get my mind on something else right then, I probably won't have ice cream. Probably not. But if I sit there and think about how good it would be, we've got chocolate chips and we've got chocolate syrup and we've got all sorts of kinds of things that would make it so good. And then all of a sudden I have this emotion that gets attached to how good that would be. And once that emotion gets in my mind, I am pretty much down the road to have an ice cream. It's very difficult for me once I have this emotion for ice cream to say, you know what, I'm just not going to have it. But it gets even worse if I'm fighting that emotion and I allow that to stay in me, then I'm going to have a desire for ice cream and I am going to have ice cream. There is no doubt about it. Once it gets to that desire stage and I know I want ice cream, I'm going to have it. But if I could have done something at the thought level, if I could have just dwelled on anything else, I probably wouldn't have this as much as I do. That's how sin works. That's how sin works. If you can capture it at the thought level, who knows if we could have put those wildfires out when they were just a tiny flame how many millions of acres would have been saved? How many hundreds of homes would have been saved? How many lives would have been saved? That's how sin works. One other thing about sin spread before we move on to the next point. This isn't on your outline, but a subpoint would be that sin has a ripple effect. Sin has a ripple effect. A wildfire begins as a tiny flame in the middle of a forest. The next thing you know, a house 20 miles away is being consumed. And that house had no bearing on how that fire got started. And you may believe that your sin just affects you, but it doesn't. Sin in your life affects you, then it affects those closest to you. If you're an adult, it's your spouse first, and then your children. I don't think this is a new concept for anybody this morning, you've either experienced this firsthand from the effects of your own sin, or you may have been collateral damage of the sin of someone close to you. Think about how David's sin with Bathsheba affected so many people, even the security of an entire nation because of that. And after sin begins to affect those closest to you, it can move to your outer circle, it can affect your friends. It can affect your workplace. And don't miss this. Individual sin within the church can destroy an entire church. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. But understand where I'm going here. When things are not getting taken captive at the thought level and sin begins to grow in the life of a church member, the entire church suffers. Which leads me to my next point, number three. Sin is universally bad. 
but worse in the believer. Sin is universally bad, but worse in the believer. And please don't misunderstand me or don't confuse me. Sin under the blood of Christ is forgiven. Our salvation is determined at salvation. So that those sins have been paid for. So I'm not talking about our eternity when I make this point. What I'm talking about is our lives here on earth and how they play out. What do I mean by this? <clears throat> In 2 Corinthians, sorry, is it 1 Corinthians? I'm sorry. Um, starting with verse 9. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would not, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Sin is universally bad, but is worse in the believer. Let me ask you something, and what would be the most concern to you? The fire that is 50 miles away? Or the fire that's at your doorstep. And I think, if I may see, be so bold, I think we seem to be paying too much attention to the wrong fires. I think sometimes if we're not careful, we can have a PhD in everybody else's sin. But when it comes to our own sin, sometimes we're not smarter than a fifth grader. If we're not careful, Christian, if we're not careful, we can have a tendency to do this. We can find a sin or two that we do not personally struggle with, and we can fixate on those. And we can know everything there is to know about those sins. We, can, we know the six or eight verses, probably have them memorized, that deal with those sins that we don't struggle with. We can probably tell you the Strong's Concordance numbers that attach to the root words about those sins that we don't struggle with. But when it comes to pointing a critical finger at ourselves, we can get very biblically illiterate very fast. Or maybe we can get amnesia. We just looked at the progression of sin in the first chapter of James, and later in the first chapter of James, it tells us to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. And then James says that when we don't do what the word says, it's like looking at ourselves in the mirror and then walking away and forgetting what we look like. So, why would God come down so harshly on a person that bears the name brother or sister? Why would God come down so harshly on those that bear the name brother or sister? You know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Those that have acknowledged Christ as Lord and Savior are redeemed. They are living in victory. Supposedly, right? They are living in victory over the sin that has enslaved them. That is the truth of Scripture. 
we as Christians are supposed to be living in victory over the sin that had enslaved us. Non-believers are not living in that victory. The Bible tells us that we were a slave to sin, but now we are a slave to the one that redeemed us. And so we are called to live differently. The church, the church is what the Spirit uses to attract the world to him through the believer. And we don't do that if we do not deal with our sin. Why would God come down so harshly on those that bear the name brother? There is a repetition over and over in Scripture about protecting the purity of the church. The church is the representation of Jesus Christ here on earth. And it cannot afford to be tarnished by sin. That's why Paul stresses here in this passage that we just read that the concern is much more about the brothers and sisters within the church in order to protect the church's purity. Paul says God judges those outside. And I'm afraid we're getting this backwards. I'm afraid we're getting this backwards. I think it may be time for brothers and sisters within the church, the church as a whole, to say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to draw a circle right here. I'm going to draw a circle right here, and my focus is going to be what goes on inside the circle. It doesn't mean that we're blind to everything else that's going on in the world. It doesn't mean we're oblivious to everything that's going on. It doesn't mean we don't need to be aware of everything else that is going on. But Scripture tells us over and over again We need to check ourselves. We need to check ourselves. We may not see it as being a problem with us. We we all can fall into that, and that's the problem. It's easy for us to think that if we're not struggling with a few of the more high-profile sins, that we're just fine, but that's not how sin works. Sin is not just the overt action of doing things Scripture forbids. Sin is also not doing things God has commanded us to do. In Galatians 5, Paul tells us that believers, as believers, we have crucified the flesh. We've crucified it. And he gives us some specific examples of sin in Galatians 5. And he goes on to tell us we have victory over these things. But he doesn't stop there. We crucify those things that Scripture forbids, and we replace it with something else. Paul calls this the fruit of the Spirit, and he lists those things that should emanate from the life of every believer. So let me ask you this morning, is there a pattern of your life? None of us are perfect. Is there a pattern in your life in which the fruit of the Spirit flows from you? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. None of us are perfect, but is this a pattern? Does this characterize you as a believer? Because this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the representation of Jesus Christ, and that is how we are supposed to live 
I've gotten into a pretty good pattern of, of working out. I can go three or four times a week, and I do that pretty well. I've established that pattern, and it's, it's been good. However, my eating habits have not necessarily caught up with the fact that I actually work out, so I carry around a fairly significant tub of goo right around here. So I've gotten, I've gotten part of it right, but I've gotten part of it wrong. And I'm afraid it's easy for us to look at, well, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do that, so I must be pretty good as a Christian. But when the Bible says that there are these things that are supposed to flow out from us, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, patience, self-control, and those things don't, we kind of short-circuited the process, just like I did, and not having my eating habits line up with, with exercise. And I think that's where we can be as Christians if we're not careful. Because this is the truth of the matter. If we don't display the fruit God has said we should display, then we are in direct disobedience to God's Word, and that's sin. And it needs to be dealt with. If the fruit of the Spirit's not the pattern of your life, knowing that we are all fault, uh, faulty here, we all make mistakes, but if, if that's not the pattern of your life, we're in sin. We can honestly say we don't struggle with a lot of overt sin, but can't honestly say that our life is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, then we're living an incomplete Christian life. And you can see the damage caused when the believer who has been redeemed, who bears the name of Christ, who has made a profession of faith in Christ, lives in direct opposition to the clear admonition of the Redeemer by the way that that Christian's life is appearing to other people. That's terribly damaging, and that's why Scripture speaks to it. The non-believer is condemned by his sin. Without Christ, he's lost and he's destined for hell. On this earth, however, the non-believer has made no profession to Christ as Lord, and thus, they didn't sign up for what we signed up for. When we made a profession of faith, when we acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior, we are pledging to live as Christ said live. We're accountable to live in a certain way, and we're charged with winning those outside the faith. We're not charged with policing them. In the passage, Paul says to those in Corinth that it's those within the church who are in sin that you need to disassociate from. And there is an implication here, and, and some scholars believe that maybe who Paul is talking about here are people that say they are believers but actually are not. And that may be true, but Paul says you, but Paul still makes a distinction between those who bear the name brother and those who don't. The damage is too much within the church. It's too much. Your body of believers can't stand up under it and as for those in sin outside the church, who are you to judge? Let's go win them to Christ. And the way that we win them to Christ is by the fruit of the Spirit flowing from alive so that they see, hey, they react to things differently than we do. There's something different about them that's attractive. So let me put it this way. We all have kindling 
because of the sin nature of every person, believer or non-believer, we all have kindling. We have it within us to commit great sin and cause great damage. But this is the distinction. Believers have a fire extinguisher. The Holy Spirit guides us, directs us, convicts us. It is the Spirit that makes known in the life of every believer that a course correction is needed. So if we've been gifted with the Holy Spirit, and we have at salvation, in which God himself, through the Holy Spirit, in that role, is acting to make us aware of our sin and put us in the right direction, what then should be our role as believers? We have a fire extinguisher. We need to be fire extinguishers. So, let me ask you, what characterizes you? Is it kindling when you're tempted by something you see on Facebook <laughs> to erupt in a fire? Do you? Do you hurt your witness in the process, or are you a fire extinguisher? Sin is universally bad, but worse than the believer. Number four, Christ alone can put out the fire within us. Christ alone can put out the fire within us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We can't study our way out of sin. We can't will our way out of sin. We can't compensate for our sin. In other words, we can't do anything about our sin problem. The Bible is clear. Jesus Christ who lived a sinless life here on earth, took on all of your sin and my sin and everyone else's sin at the cross and the shedding of his blood, the perfect sacrifice paid for mine and yours. Do we still sin? Yes. We do have that sin nature here on earth, but remember the power of Christ is within us. So how much more should we want to put our old self away and live for the one who set us free from sin? It is then that a lost world looks at us and sees our Savior. Not the way that we live when we give in to the temptation of winning a point rather than a soul. Do you know something else? Fire isn't the only thing that can change the elements around it. So can light. Just a tiny light appearing in a dark room lights everything up. It flips the script, and you and I have a choice. Are we going to choose to be light, or are we going to live with our houses on fire? Because think about this. If the fruit of the Spirit began to emanate in the life of every believer, and you could just see this love, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, if you could just see it popping all over the life of a believer rising into the atmosphere, it is going to change the elements around it. It's going to change the elements around it. And what is around it cannot help but notice that. We could change the atmosphere around our community if that was the case, if it just was popping up from us, the fruit of the Spirit, and the Spirit is within us for that to happen. We can make that happen if we take our eyes off of everybody else's sin and start dealing with our own and then replace it with the fruit of the Spirit. Church, sin is destructive and deadly. Sin spreads and can spread rapidly. 
sin is universally bad, but worse than the believer. And Christ alone can put out the fire within us. I, I don't know what happens when we die exactly. I know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. A lot of people who have had near-death experiences do, do uh, come back with some commonalities. The, the thing that you hear the most is a tunnel of light. And maybe, maybe there's something to that. Maybe as we die, maybe there is a tunnel of light. And the way that I like to think about it is Jesus is at the other end of that tunnel. And I don't know about you, but when it's my time, and if that's how it works, and I see Jesus at the other end of that tunnel, I'm making a beeline. I'm going to sprint into his arms, and I want him to say, good job. Good job. You, you did what my word said. Good job. I know, Chuck, you want to hear that. I know you guys want to hear that. And we can do that if we focus on what Scripture says, put a circle around us, and start concentrating on what's inside of it. Stand and pray with me. This is a two-part uh, invitation as Aaron and those come to play. The first part of this invitation is if, if you're a believer, you can go ahead and close your eyes and pray with me. Uh, if you're a believer and you, you may say, you know what? Uh, I think the Spirit has talked to me during this time. And I just, I don't think I've been focusing on the right things. And... What I need to do is I need to draw a circle around myself and I need to pledge to focus on that and not only deal with the things that may be in my life that are overt sin, but also replace it with the fruit of the Spirit. If that is something that has spoke to you this morning as a believer, could you just raise your hand? I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray for you this morning around the room. If that is something that you believe is true for you, thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Let me pray for you. Father, all of us, we can all make course corrections, Father. None of us are perfect in this life. I pray that as you have spoken this morning, I pray that you would do a work and that we would focus on ourselves and that we would not only deal with those things that we may be doing that Scripture forbids, but that we would replace it with the fruit of the Spirit so that we can change the world. The second part of this invitation is this. You may be a non-believer. You may not know if you are a Christian. Or you may know, hey, I've actually never made the decision to follow Christ. And something has spoken to you during this time, and it works differently for different people. Sometimes it feels like a weight on your chest. Sometimes it feels like uh, a frog in your throat. Sometimes there is just the sense that I know I need to make a decision for Christ. If that's you and you would like to make a first-time decision for Christ, or if you would like to nail down your salvation, if you are not sure that you have made that decision, then this uh, invitation time is for you. Further, if uh, you have never made it uh, something to join a family and you do not have a family of believers to hook in with, then the door of this church is open for you for a membership as well. You may need to do some business with the Lord here at the altar. It is open as well for you to come and pray about whatever is on your mind. 
I'm going to pray for us, and then um, the choir is going to sing. Father, thank you so much for this time that you've given us. I pray that you would speak to hearts and whatever business needs to be done, Lord, I pray that you would give them the boldness to do what needs to be done. Thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.